But then the ultimate goal is to make your fundamentals sound impeccable, incredible, in all ranges, at all speeds, at all dynamics. And then you transfer that directly. There's a direct correlation from what you're doing in your technique to how you make music. Because in the end of the day, what we're actually doing is making music. This episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Guru Saying Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Paul Markello. Now, Paul, he's a bit of a multitasker. In addition to his duties as the principal trumpet of the Orchestra Symphonique de Montreal, Paul is also a highly sought-after soloist. He's traveled the world performing both old and new works and recently completed his fifth solo recording project. And in his spare time, Paul is on the faculty of two universities, McGill University in Montreal and the Music Academy of the West in Santa Barbara, all in a day's work. So, pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin! All right, and uh, here we are, another uh, phenomenal episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang, and I'm here today with uh, Mr. Paul Markello. Paul, it is a pleasure to meet you, my good man. Pleasure to meet you as well. Happy to be here. Oh, awesome. Um, you know, before we go in, any deeper into this, uh, we'll, we'll just kind of use this as, a, as our jumping off point. Um, I understand that uh, you went to school with uh, someone that, that I am very well acquainted with, uh, Joey Tartell. Yes. Uh, so what I want to know, I, I want the dirt on Joey. Uh, oh. Was was Joey as, as big of a Joey in, in his college days as, as he is now, or or did he just kind of grow into this persona? No, bigger. He was bigger. He was a bigger Joey. I mean, I just saw him at ITG in San Antonio, and like he cut his hair and he was all dressed up, and I was I, I almost didn't recognize him. But listen, I was as shocked as you are uh, in at Eastman. In the middle of winter, this is not an exaggeration, he would wear uh, huge baggy shorts. I think they were from North Carolina, UNC, shorts and a T-shirt, and then he'd throw on a winter jacket. And he had long hair, much longer hair, and he was very, uh, how can I say it? I mean, he is a larger-than-life personality. I loved him. I, I, I loved seeing him and hanging out with him because, um, you know, he was he was more in the jazz uh uh, arena so we didn't cross paths as much but a lot of times i'd catch him like at the end of the night when the school was closing and all of us nerds who would practice until you know whatever 1105 p.m would get on the bus and that's when i would see him get on the bus in his shorts and i would just laugh i was just like he would he would make me laugh you know which which i was probably way too intense way too serious at that time so he he definitely lightened the mood a little bit yeah, yeah. Well, Joe, Joe is a great guy, and and I didn't even realize. And I had him on the show uh, a few episodes ago, and he did mention uh, your name did come up in the conversation. I was like, oh, well, I'll have to ask about that. So, well, I'm a huge fan. I mean, he's an incredible, incredible player, and and you know, for for whatever uh, I'm talking about, like him wearing shorts and whatever, I don't take lightly how serious of a player he is. You know, he is one of the best or the best that's ever done it. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it was, 
really a pleasure to 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 be with him at Eastman and to hear his work. Yeah, yeah, he's a good guy, good guy. But uh, let's let's get the conversation back uh, on you. Uh, you're originally from uh, the Chicagoland area, is that correct? Well, yeah, I grew up, I was born in Champaign, Illinois, and that's about two hours south, well, two and a half hours south of Chicago. That's where the University of Illinois is located. Yeah. So uh, being in Montreal is is not that quite of a stretch in terms of weather for you. Well, I mean, being in Montreal now, I mean, if I compare our winters to Chicago, Illinois winters, it makes it look like kids play over there because we in Chicago or even in Champaign, which is further south, we would have winter coming around, you know, Christmas time is when we would get snow and it would get really cold until about March. And then in March, um, unless you were by the lake in downtown Chicago, March started to have glimpses of spring. Now, just to give you some perspective in Montreal in March, is when we're sometimes getting our absolute worst snowstorms, freezing cold temperatures. Uh, I call it snowmageddon because it's like there's so much snow. It's like a battle. It's a battle to like dig your car out of the snow. Um, and so Montreal winters can go to the end of April. And I'm not really exaggerating. Like it's oh. not. Yeah, I, I have never been to Montreal. I've you know been to Toronto, been to Vancouver quite a bit. Uh, Montreal is is on my to do list, but uh, I think I just got to hit that right window because I am not a cold weather guy. So I want to make sure that I'm I'm any place where when it's moderate temperatures. Okay, you got to come visit. I'll tell you the best times are like right now. September in Montreal is one of my favorite months of the year because. Well, today is just a little bit colder than usual, but um, it's around, let's see, we're in Celsius. So it's around like 23 to 28 degrees Celsius, which is around roughly 75 degrees Fahrenheit. And then at night, it dips down to the 60s. So it's a little cooler. You sleep well at night. Uh, fall in October here when the leaves are changing is absolutely epic. It's, it's just gorgeous. So I really would recommend September, October. All right. Well, I will. I will make sure to add that to my uh, travel itinerary now that uh, travel has been uh, opened up. So uh, yeah, it's not that bad of a drive from from uh, Central Pennsylvania. So I think I can handle that. Come on over. Let me know when you're when when you're coming over, and I'll get you some tickets to the orchestra. Oh, awesome! That that would be fantastic. My wife would would love that. Uh, she's been bugging me to go to the orchestra for a while. So. Uh, but but speaking of the orchestra, uh, I mean you, your your career path has taken you from from Chicago to uh, to New York. Uh, you know your, your studies at Eastman. Uh, you, you've kind of bounced around to a few different places uh, on your career path until you you've uh, landed in Montreal. How how long have you been uh, in Montreal? Well, this is now I'm entering my I can't believe this, but I'm entering my 27th season with the orchestra. Holy cow! Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. Nice run. The time has flown. It's just flown. Yeah. You know, how do you see um, the the path, or I don't want to say the path, but the current state of uh, the classical music world, especially the, the orchestral world, uh, in terms of being a viable job market? Because I, I know that, that for a while there were so many orchestras that were basically shutting down uh, because they didn't have funding. 
uh, which means that the you know if you're going to school to be a principal trumpet player, uh, your your job market is just shrinking, shrinking. How is that now? Is it has, is it stabilized? Has it grown? Is it continuing to diminish? Well, I mean, it's a viable question, and it's one that that you know it, it's been on the topic for forever. I mean, my entire professional career. Uh, I was always told, hey, you know, the, there's not going to be the job market. Um, orchestras are suffering, which is true. I mean, many orchestras are having a very difficult time. Um, that being said, it, it's really important, and I want to be I want to be meticulous in the way that I answer this. But it's really important that the major cities. Let's just talk about North America, okay? The major cities they have to be leaders in the arts and in culture. That means that. Governments need to be funding them, and the and the private sector, uh, the, the companies that are very successful, and the, and the private individuals that are very successful. You know, I think it's an obligation. Well, I shouldn't say obligation. It's a responsibility to maintain the cultural standard of those cities. That being said, it's never really changed in the big cities in terms of the support. Um, you know, all the big orchestras are still doing very well. Uh, then, then you know, you have like certain tiers below that where some of the smaller cities, maybe it's not as as um, successful. The funding is not as vast. Uh, and so they've gone through some crisis moments. But in many cases, they bounce back. I mean, I'll just give you a, a, an example. I started my career when I was 22 in New Orleans with the New Orleans Symphony. It was called the New Orleans Symphony at that time. And after my first year as principal trumpet, I got a letter of termination, all of us did, from the New Orleans Symphony, stating that we were all no longer employees because the orchestra was filing for bankruptcy. And, you know, here we go. This is a prime example of what you're talking about. And I, I wasn't even done with Eastman. I was still in my senior year at that point. So I was kind of freaking out. And... And then uh, the New World Symphony Orchestra uh, had an opening, so I auditioned there, and I got in. Thank God. So I had a safe haven. But within six months, the orchestra in New Orleans reorganized as a cooperative called the Louisiana Philharmonic, and we came back. We were earning 50 bucks a week at the beginning, all of us, even principals, 50 bucks a week. Can you imagine? Like, you can barely live on that. And then that got to 100, then 150, and then it kept going and going and going until we could get enough community support to make it a viable job. Now, I personally couldn't afford to live off of $50 a week, so I stayed in Miami, and I commuted back and forth. It wasn't a long flight, and I was able to play the big concerts in, in New Orleans, but then also have my, my position in Miami. And eventually, and to this day, the Louisiana Philharmonic has been, you know, maybe not incredibly prosperous, but they're surviving and they're still going. So, wow, that, maybe that's a long way of answering it. I just want to be a half glass is half full instead of half empty. Don't give up. If you're a student in, in, in school right now, don't give up on your dream. If that's your dream, there are orchestras, there are positions. Um, there will be a place if you have the talent and the hard work and the discipline to persevere and you have something unique in your playing, there will be possibilities for you somewhere. You just have to keep, keep going and never give up. Yeah. Well, it, in the, in the classical world, I mean, I, I know I, I am more 
uh, I have more experience in the uh, the commercial trumpet world, uh, and you know the the days the days of playing in a band or you know having a gig um, have have changed. You know, so so I mean there there are certainly those people who do land those great cush gigs. But for most of us, it's, you know, piecemeal, you know, you're putting, putting your career together piecemeal. Um, is that true in the classical world as well? Where, I mean, like when you're talking about playing in Miami and playing in, in uh, New Orleans at the same time, basically, uh, that, that's very similar to being like a, you know, a journeyman or, a, you know, kind of a freelancer. Uh, is that part of, of the, the working world of, of the classical musician as well? Well, this was a unique situation to me at that time because, like I said, I couldn't. I had so much student loan debt. There was no way that I could tell Louisiana, uh, New Orleans, say, "Hey, I'm coming back to Louisiana Philharmonic for 50 bucks a week." Like, I can't pay my bills. I can't. I can't. I couldn't do it. Right. So, you, uh, I'll stay here in Miami if you want to find another first trumpet. That's fine. But I'd like to help you as much as I can. So, they were, they were open at that point, maybe even a bit desperate just to have me there and then just have somebody in that chair playing to get them started. So I said, listen, I'll, I'll pay for my ticket. And as long as I have, you know, somebody, I, I had a roommate in New Orleans, I didn't have to pay rent. I had a rent free place in Miami. This is a unique situation, Jose, because it was a dire situation. Normally when you win a job in an orchestra, that's your, that's your job. That's a full-time position where you're staying in one city it's not it shouldn't necessarily uh be vital for you to be bouncing around to different cities however in the freelance scene you're absolutely right if you don't win a job a position in an orchestra that has a full-time contract well you're kind of at the mercy of wherever the gigs are and that will make you what i would call a regional a regional journeyman or journeywoman you know i mean you've got to be able to have a good set of wheels and get yourself from gig to gig in that region. Um, you know what I mean? Like, and, and, and that's, and that's a tough situation. I, I have many students who have gone through that situation and, you know, I, I always talk to them to make sure that, you know, is this what you really want? Are you, are you happy being a freelance, a freelancer or would you rather have a full-time position? And most of them are working for the full-time position, but some of them actually do like the variety. And they don't want to be stuck. I, I say stuck. They don't want to be locked in to an orchestra. So they kind of are, some of them are going for that freelance situation. You know, a city like New York or LA can be very prosperous for that, be it Broadway versus the, the soundtrack scene in LA. You know, it can be very, very prosperous. In fact, in some ways, it could be as much or more than some symphony orchestras. So it really depends on what you're after. Right. Right. So it, yeah, in, in your situation, being, uh, being a principal, um, you, you've got that gig, but you're also, you know, you're also touring and, and being a featured soloist. So, um, you know, when, when you're in, when you're having to shift gears from, from being, you know, the guy in, uh, in the back of the orchestra to being the guy in the front of the orchestra, uh, you know, how, how do you manage, uh, you know, the the mindset shift that you have to have between uh, being, uh, you know, because being being the principal, yes, you, you are the lead voice uh, in in the brass section, but still, 
there's a big difference, I think, between being that guy and being the guy out front. So um, how do you manage the, the, the mind shift that you have to take to, to be able to be in both of those worlds and to do those uh, to the level that, that you're able to do that at? Well, you know, uh, it's really difficult. It's really difficult. And, I, you know, just recently I've been reflecting a lot on, you know, why, why I do this. Because it's, you know, like we just finished um, a tour in Asia with Mahler 5 and then we recorded it. We performed it and recorded it back here in Montreal. This was just a couple weeks ago. And now we're opening our season next week with Mahler 2 and then we're going on a European tour. And at the same time, I have... Um, four concerto performances I have to get ready for um, that are all happening within the next whatever four months and like I just got off you could probably see the ring on my lip I just got out of my studio before this interview and was practicing one of these brand new concertos that I'm working on and it's just it was just so it's so difficult it's so challenging and then I have to prepare Mahler too at the same time and I'm just like my I think my head's gonna explode right now um, it's really, you know, like I said about your choice as a student of what you want to do. When I was a kid growing up, I didn't dream of playing in the orchestra. I dreamt of being a soloist. I, my first recording was Timothy Dokshitzer because my family background is Ukrainian. Um, I, I got a album only because I saw that he was born in Ukraine. Timothy Dokshitzer was born in Ukraine. And I bought his album of Haydn Hummel on the B-flat trumpet. And I absolutely wore that record out and i would grow up i just grew up wanting to sound like him and wanting to play like him because of our ukrainian heritage and and then i heard winton marsalis you know i heard winton playing and i was like i heard him do uh, also Haydn hollow which he won the grammy for and and i and i heard, i watched him on tv at the grammys playing and then i got all his subsequent recording and of course i grew up hearing maurice andre and hokan hardenberger tom stevens Gerard Schwartz, a number of other soloists that I just, that's what I wanted to do. Um, and then as I got older, I realized, uh, well, I shouldn't say this. Uh, I heard the Chicago Symphony come through my hometown and play Mahler 5. And I heard Herseth play the Mahler 5 live when I was probably 14 years old, 15. And that completely rocked my world. So I've always had this duality in, in my mind, you know, I, people ask me a lot, well, hey, why are you doing these all these solos when you have a full-time gig at the orchestra? How do you, how, why are you doing it? How do you do it? Whatever. If, I to, if I'm to be true to myself as to, to, to what I want to be as an art, as a trumpet artist, I have to be true to why I started playing in the first place. And that's because I love, I love the, the sound of the trumpet as a soloist. That's, that's the bottom line. I love you know, in recital with piano, and I love the sound of the trumpet with the orchestra as a soloist. I just think there's something so unique about it. But I also really, truly love to play in the back of the orchestra as first trumpet. And so I'm trying to do both. But I can tell you, honestly, Jose, it's, it's especially lately, uh, maybe it's because I'm getting older. I, I had a daughter. Uh, I have a, now a two-year-old daughter. Um, it's, it's, man, it's, it's really, really, really tough. And I still i can tell that tell you this with all honesty i still haven't figured out the best way to practice for both i always feel like i'm never prepared enough okay and and it's but maybe that's part of the 
why it works so far is because I always feel insecure about, hey, did I cover that passage? Is that, should I do that, you know, maybe half, half tempo? Should I, you know, should I save my chops on the, in the orchestra tonight because I have a solo? I mean, I'm always like thinking about a good equilibrium between the two. And I think that's why I actually have found maybe uh, a way to protect myself because I, I will share with you that, you know, I, I got in big trouble in my chops a long time ago, uh, quite some time ago, by, by over-practicing, by just doing way too much. And since I've worked my way out of that, I'm now always contemplating on the best balance, the best way to, as Phil Smith used to say in our lessons, you know, strengthen your chops without abusing your chops. Yeah. Well, and that, you know, that's a really um, deep subject uh, that I, I think sometimes, well, one, when we start playing, you know, when we're bit by that bug, when, when you know, you're in high school or you're in college and, and you're, you're young and dumb, uh, it's, it's just pound, pound, pound. I mean, we see it in the, in the trumpet world, but I mean, we also see it in other things. I mean, you see it in, in, in athletics, you see it in, in so many different things where your, your resiliency is at, uh, probably at its peak, uh, physically. Uh, so you, you can, you can get away with doing stuff, even partying, you know, you can go out and you can drink all night long and get up and go to class the next day. Well, there comes a day where it takes you much longer to recover, from uh, whatever activity you've been, uh, you know, enjoying. So, you know, I think as we get older, we have to become much more efficient in however we approach uh, our practice or or any of the activities that we deal with. So, you know, when you're when you're trying to balance that, uh, you know, what is your what is your approach? I mean, how how do you think about you know, managing, because I think that that's one of the things that so many of us struggle with is, you know, how do you, how do you make the most of your practice? Uh, and, you know, without killing yourself, but also, you know, making sure that you're pushing yourself enough to make the improvements that are necessary. Yeah, sorry, let me get into some specifics. Then let me tell you what I just did before this, this podcast, right. I was, I have my categories in my warm up and fundamentals, I have my categories that are non negotiable, I hit them, Every day, and without telling you specific exercises, I will tell you, uh, and I can justify that in a moment, but I'll tell you that every day I do some sort of long tone practice that morphs into vocalese practice. So long tones, obviously sustaining long notes in pretty much all registers, but mostly middle and low register and pedals. And then I do like vocalese could be like Jim Stamp. So working through sustained tones but moving them slowly through the horn so middle register to low middle to pedals middle pedals to upper middle pedals to extreme upper starting upper going all the way down to pedals that's something i do every day so so long tones vocalese that turns into flexibility so flexibility is a moving vocalese so moving faster like through violin or uh, i love scott belk's uh flexibility books, Charles Colin, Schloss, uh, any Schlossberg stuff. Uh, what else do I do? Um, trying to think of other flexibility books and I'm blanking right now. Pick your favorite flexibility book, find the one that, that, that the exercises that really work for you, that make you stronger and feel really gooey and connected through your playing and work those through. 
after I do flexibility, I go to what I call scales three ways. So that's slur to legato tongue to staccato tongue. I always do those three variations. And then my last um, part of my fundamentals every day is what I call power. Now, the power for me is extending my dynamic spectrum. So flexibility within the dynamics. So being able to play right up to double F or triple F, I'm usually hanging around the double F area to get my extreme, then swinging that all the way back down to pianissimo or even softer. And where I work the softer is to really get the taper on the note, you know, to feather out of notes. I, I, I really take a lot of uh, care to, to work on feathering out of my notes so that I, that's the art of phrasing for me to be able to finish a note well. So that power section is really important to me because I think dynamic practice is a way to have another kind of flexibility in your playing. If you play monodynamically in your warm-up, and then all of a sudden you're asked to play extreme dynamics in a gig, you're not prepared. Not to mention artistically, let's just talk about the artistic merit. If you don't have an extreme dynamic register, you can't honor the composers in the way that they really wrote. I just worked through Mahler too. There's passages there that are double F, triple F up on high C's. And you have to be able to do that at that volume with your best sound and intonation. But you also... At the towards the end of the first movement of Mahler two, there's double P, you know, little trumpet calls C to high G, that you have to also manage that with your best sound, and and your best intonation. So that dynamic range is very very important to me. Now, because I I mentioned to you that I've got this this Michael Fine trumpet concerto, and Mahler two right now that I'm practicing at the same time, what I decided to do, and this is something that I do very often is rather than just play the same old exercises for 30 minutes in my fundamentals, my long tone practice came out of long tone licks from Mahler II and the Michael Fine Trumpet Concerto. My flexibility work morphed into passages from Mahler II and Michael Fine. So for, I'll just give an example for those of you that know Mahler II. Last moment you have you have them in various keys, B flat minor, B, B minor. So I started to do passages like that in my flexibility in all keys. Slur them, legato tongue them, staccato tongue them, play them soft, play them really loud. So while I'm warming myself up and doing all the keys so I'm comprehensive, I'm also practicing the modern too. Then rather than do my typical scale work, I looked for scalic passages in the Michael Fine Trumpet Concerto, of which there are many, but they're really awkward. They're not what the ear gravitates towards, but that worked really well for me to include them in this, in my warm-up. And I transposed them in all keys, like a jazz player would do. Slur, legato, staccato, extremely loud, extremely soft. So I was able to get my warm-up but I was also able to practice passages from the Michael Fine Concerto and the Mahler II. Then I took a small break. And normally now after my warm-up, if I have a day off like I do today, I'll do etude practice. Well, I just don't have enough chops to do that and practice these new pieces, the new, the new piece in the Mahler II. So I took a 10-minute break. And then I decided to uh, – the, the Michael Fine Concerto is seven pages long. 
And out of that, it's all written in one movement, <clears throat> like the Aratunian. And rather than run the whole concerto, because I'm just not strong enough to do that right now, I divide it up into five sections, like five etudes. And I just, in half tempo, because I can't play the licks up to tempo right now, I did basically, in my mind, five etudes, but it was the Michael Fine concerto that I played without stopping in five sections at half tempo. So I checked my list of what I would do anyway, but I put in place what I have to prepare. I hope that's, I hope that I explained that well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's taking, uh, it, because I, I think a lot of times people look at practice as being something that's separate from, uh, the, the performance or the musical skills, you know, like, right. the stuff. and you know, when you're, when you're limited in time, taking what the, you know, the, the things you got to work on and making that your practice, I think that that's, that's really brilliant. Um, I think more, even more important is like having that very clear concept of, you know, your non-negotiables of being able to say, I, you know, every day I need to do this. And I think sometimes we get married to the process of things. It's like, yes. you know, I have to play, you know, these stamp exercises, or I have to play this Caruso exercise, or I have to play this Schlossberg exercise, um, as opposed to this is the idea that I'm trying to practice. Yes. Uh, then let's find some way to do it that, that's creative. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And if I could just interject for a second, I want to backtrack to what I was saying about I'm not going to give my exercises in those concepts that I explained because they're rotating for me. If I just do major scale, let's say in my scales segment, if I just do major scales every day, well, how boring is that? I've been playing for, you know, since I'm 10 years old. I actually don't play major scales every day or minor scales every day. I mean, I'm the last five years I've been trying to improvise. So I, I warm up very often on blues scales or Lydian or Dorian or Mixolydian or whatever, you know, I, I mix it up all the time. So that, that process is at, you're totally right. It's creative. And when we talk about fundamentals, what I'm hearing in a lot of younger students is that there's no concept to the fundamentals. They're just banging out exercises with no concept, no, no attention to, the quality of the sound or the intonation, the clarity on the articulation, this connectivity and the slurs, or even, even phrasing. You can phrase your exercises. There's a peak point. There's a start point. There's a peak point. There's a taper point. And if you do that, it's, again, you're being more efficient because, you know, certainly when we practice some exercises, certainly, let me be clear about this. It's got to sound archaic. It's got to sound like a caveman playing the horn. Sometimes, yes. If you heard some of the things I do, you would think this guy's a beginner. I mean, when I'm doing my glissando slurs or my reverse bending stuff or lead pipe practice, uh, it doesn't sound good, but it gets my lips in the right position. 
But then the ultimate goal is to make your fundamentals sound impeccable, incredible, in all ranges, at all speeds, at all dynamics. And then you transfer that directly. There's a direct correlation from what you're doing in your technique to how you make music. Because in the end of the day, what we're actually doing is making music. And that's something else that I, you know, as I travel and do more teaching and master classes, uh, I'm, I, I push hard. I push hard. I know some people, maybe it, it's tough love for them, but I won't accept just having good technique. There's too many players that have really, really amazing technique. I grew up in an era. I sound like the old guy now, but I grew up in an era where, you know, there was Herseth and there was, there was, um, you know, Tom Stevens and there was Duck Schitzer and there was Winton and there was Hokan and there was, you know, all these, this, this huge variety of sound color and sound palette. And each one had their own personality in the way that they played. And I'm not hearing that as much in, in younger students these days. I'm hearing kind of a generic homogenous sound, which is wonderful. That's wonderful. And we all aspire to have that, that toolbox of great playing. But really, at the end of the day, what we're after is to, to have a strong musical presence and to move people with your playing. Not just move trumpet players with your playing, but move audiences. When we talk about classical music surviving, it's got to touch the heart. It's got to touch the soul. It's got to move you from the inside out. And that's, that's the way, that's the reason I wanted to play in the first place, because I was moved when I was a kid. I wasn't sitting back there thinking, wow, that's perfect double tonguing. I want to have perfect double tonguing. I mean, of course, that's part of the process. And of course, I want that. But I want that perfect, perfect double tonguing with incredible music making. That's always been the goal. Sorry, I went off on a tangent, but you got me excited. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. That's that's great stuff. You know, because yeah, you know, like from from the the commercial side of things, um, you know, it's always the you know higher, faster, louder, or you know the you know the if, on the jazz side, you know, it's, you know, okay, well, you know, how fast can I play? How many bebop licks do I know? Uh, you know that that sort of thing. And it becomes like when you go to uh, a conference, like you know something like ITG, and you know you've got yeah, you got the lead players that come in and they're testing out horns and it's like how loud and you know how many double C's can I play? You know, the jazz players is like, how fast can I, you know, play this bebop lick? Then the the classical players, it's like, okay, well, how many people, you know, like how many versions of the the Artunian or you know, pictures of the exhibition do I have to listen to uh as people are trying out stuff? Uh and so it becomes like these, these are their their markers. You know, this is a you know, I aspire to be able to do this thing. Yeah. As opposed to when you have a cat that comes up, you know, if they're, if they're trying out a horn or trying out a mouthpiece and you just, you, they're not trying to play the technical aspect. It's just, they're trying to make music and it's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. This guy I could listen to, you know, or this, or this, this girl I could listen to for a while because they're actually, you could hear uh, that it wasn't about the technique. It was about, you know, creating some sort of emotional connection uh, with the horn and then with the listener. So, uh, yeah, it's just, it's real interesting to me when, when I, I talk to people from different, uh, different approaches to music, you know, that, that, you know, the, the thing that really separates to me, the great players from the rest of the players in the world is that understanding that, yes, this is about emotion and the technique is just 
the way uh, that allows us, it removes as many obstacles from us being able to express our idea and get the, get the audience to be able to, to understand it and hear it. So, you know, technique is, is not driving the ship. Technique is just making it a little bit easier for us to do what we want to do. That's exactly right. That's exactly it. And my teachers in Chicago Symphony that I had, because I, I played for growing up, I, would, I took lessons from Herseth, Will Scarlet, Chickowitz, and Clevenger. Those are, those are four different players from Chicago Symphony that I had the privilege to take lessons from growing up as a, as a teenager. And it was, it was Clevenger and Herseth in lessons that would say to me, you've got to tell a story. You've got to give some, put your statement on it. Put an exclamation point on what you're doing. You got to be more convincing, more convincing. Come on. The music drives the technique, not the other way around. Lead by that. I remember playing Goldenberg and Schmoyle for Clevenger at his house. And it was a three hour lesson. My chops were really tired <clears throat> and I was playing it safe because I knew I couldn't get through it if I had didn't back off. And he's like yelling at me. He was like, no, that's not how it goes. It's got to be, you know, like sputtering and, and, and hard and, and, and brilliant. And you're not playing that way. Come on, come on, come on. So I did it for like two bars and I couldn't last any longer than two bars. He said, that's it. I said, well, Mr. Clevenger, can I ask you a question? I, if I do that, um, if I play like that, I can't last more than two measures. He said, well, what does that tell you? You got to practice more like that. So you build your endurance, but playing like that, you know, so the point is like, you have to know how it goes in your head to understand what you have to do in your technical practice. I mean, Mahler too, what I was just doing in my, again, my warm up, my long tones, they were going up to high C's because that last movement, you know, they had bomb, 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 then you hit the high C, double forte for three bars down to Piacissimo. And that's the power of God. That that high C, what Mahler intended that to be was biblical. It comes out of the Bible. It's the sound of the last trumpet before the end of the world. And then the resurrection starts. That's the second part of the fifth moon of Mahler II. When you think about that story, doesn't that tell you a whole different way to play that high C? I'm not playing it safe. I'm going to swing for the fences on that high C. Now, if I don't practice that in my practice room, I'm going to have to play it safe on stage. To Clevenger's point, if you know how it goes, that means in the practice room, you have plenty of time to prepare that and have enough chops to do that. Listen listen to Phil Smith's recording with the New York Philharmonic and Leonard Bernstein on Mahler II, the fifth moon, that high C. I was studying with him at the time, and I was at that performance with Bernstein in the audience, and he played it alone. It's written for four trumpets. He played it alone because I think there was intonation problems or something. I don't really know exactly why, but he chose to play it alone. Oh my God. If you didn't think you heard the power of God in a trouble player, it's coming out Phil Smith's bell on that recording. Please, any student listening here, take a listen to that. And that's what I'm talking about. So there's a way to do it. And anybody can do that. Anybody can play that high C like he did, really. If you practice it the right way for enough time, for enough years and enough time and efficiently, you can do it. But you have to have that in your ears in the practice room for many, many months before you dare to go on stage and play it like that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's the it's like the idea you know, that that um, you know you, you have these different phases in your practice, and 
you know, um, much like uh, much like Joey, I, I do like sports, <laughs> and uh, uh, and, I, and to, to draw a sports analogy, I mean, you, you have practice that you do that is, uh, you know, you, you're kind of you're doing your walkthroughs, and you are just kind of you know working out the bugs of things, but yeah. you have to have as close to real time performance uh, practice as well. You have to try and simulate the best that you can what you're going to be demanded to do. So uh, I think sometimes it, that it's too easy to to lose sight of that. That you know, like you're saying, if if you've got to be able to play that that high C at that volume and then taper it off, and it has to have the feeling of being that the final trumpet sound, um, you know, you. you you have to practice it that way. You can't go up on stage and just ex expect it to come out of the horn. You have to put yourself in that situation. And I, I think that that what you were saying about understanding the nature of, of you know what Mahler was trying to accomplish at that point, what what he's trying to create, yeah, that that creates a completely different feeling uh, than even just looking at looking at it on paper and saying, okay, yeah, it's got to be loud and it's got to taper, you know. But the yeah. emotion behind it. You know, yeah, you cannot you cannot go into that uh, half-assing it you know, yeah. in any stretch of the imagination. Well, let's take a look at Mahler 5, which I just recorded. It's the first time in my career that I've ever recorded a Mahler symphony, and it happens it's the Mahler 5th. I mean, my God, that's the one. You know, that's the one I've always dreamed of. That was the one I heard Herseth do when I was a kid. I mean, I really, I posted something on Instagram about it, and I got a lot of uh, comments about it. And because I wrote that this took me back, this took me back to when I was growing up as a kid. I really felt that it was a full circle moment. Now let's think about what Mahler, why, how, why did he write that funeral march? Was it just, uh, he just, well, you know, I feel like writing for a funeral march. I mean, no, it was a personal connection of him losing his own child. And eventually on the next symphony, the sixth, he knew that he had a fatal heart condition. He had been diagnosed with a heart condition before he wrote the fifth, but he didn't know he was gonna die. But his child did die. And the symphony starts with a funeral march that is represented by the trumpet. You don't think when he wrote that, that that came with a lot of emotion and a lot of something very deep from within him and the way Mahler wrote was he wrote sadness on top of happiness layered together so that you could live both ways because that was the reality of his life. When you process that and that emotion, it gives a whole different perspective of how to play that opening solo. And when I, and I researched, I mean, I listened to every recording again. I, I've always done that, but before we recorded it, I went back and listened to everybody I could find out there. And you know, and wanted to come up with an interpretation that I felt was representative of what Mahler wanted and what I was capable of doing and what I wanted to do as an artist with respect to what Mahler wanted. I mean, this is a huge responsibility that supersedes, it's, it goes way beyond technique. But the interesting thing that I try to tell students is that if you have this in your mind, it actually makes the technique easier. That's the irony of the whole thing. Because if you just look at what Mahler wrote, this, you know, da, 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 that's pretty straightforward. It's just, you know, four articulations. Da, 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 da. 
But if you only play it like four articulations, you actually need to make it harder for yourself because you're just worried about having four perfect articulations instead of understanding what this is. It's actually a drum roll. It's a drum roll. You know, and so that's a different way of thinking about how you should play that opening fanfare. Anyway, I could go on for this forever, but it's my, my point is that from, from my perspective, and again, I feel like the old guy here, but <clears throat> from my perspective, I don't want to compromise on the idea that, you know, we can't just show great technique. That's just not good enough. You got to be able to, like Charlier's book, The Transcendental Etudes, you have to transcend that technique. If you want to make it a sports analogy, I also grew up with Michael Jordan. I played basketball in high school. I grew up in Chicago. I went to live games. I probably saw about six to eight games, including playoff games with Michael Jordan. And when I watched Michael, I, I was very fortunate. When I had the job in Montreal, I, I had enough money finally to buy a courtside seat. So I bought a courtside seat next to the Bulls bench, game seven against the Indiana Pacers. When they, Then he went to Utah and he won his sixth and final rank. And I was sitting there. I was probably 15 feet from MJ and they were, the game was on the line. They were behind and he, it wasn't just that he won. He did win the game, obviously. And he won the game. <laughs> it wasn't just that he made the shots. It was the, it was more than that. It was more than his technique. It was the way he did it. His focus, his energy, his commitment, the passion, that he drove to the hoop. There was no way he was not going to make that shot. It was, I mean, you knew, everybody in the, in the stadium knew it because of the commitment to what he was doing. And it was beautiful the way he would do it. There was just, it was an artistry to it, you know? Even when he slammed dunk, you know, tomahawk dunk over people, there was a beauty to it, you know? Because he practiced that. He practiced it. He dreamed of it. It was in his head before it was on the court. Yeah, I mean the 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 mental it's the it's the combination of the mental aspect, the emotional aspect, and the physical aspect. When those come together, those are the transcendent uh, personalities and the performances. And yeah, that the um, I think uh, yeah, we we need you need to get on that wheel at some point. Uh, you know whether whether it's starting with the with the the technical aspect or whether it's starting with the mental aspect of it doesn't matter I don't think it matters where you start but at some point you have to be able to get all of them rolling together and yes. you know I, and in terms of when you when you talk about technique um you know the I guess it's, sometimes it becomes a sterility because we become so focused on making a perfect performance uh, one of my martial arts uh, teachers always used to say, you know, ugly practice, beautiful performance. You know, it's the, yes, you need, you need to be able to get in and dig down and, and really refine the, the minutia of your movement. But uh, you, you have to also remember that you have to be able to let those things go if yes. you to make it beautiful. So like when, yeah. when you're working with a student, I mean, how, how do you, uh, help them to to understand or, or try to understand 
that it is about transcending the technique, that it is about something so much more than just, you know, how fast can you tongue and how fast your fingers are? Well, let's talk about what you just said, because, you know, that part of like, um, I, I'll never forget there was a bass trombonist I worked with in New Orleans Symphony, uh, Dick Erb. And we were talking about this and just in terms of practicing some things, like especially loud playing. Loud playing at times when you're first learning to play loud, it, let's talk about on the classical side, um, it can be um, not such an easy process. And sometimes you sound not so great trying to get there because your red line is not very far out. You know, it's like uh, past mezzo forte, you start your one's tone might not be as great. And he said to me, yeah, Paul, you know, you got to grab the shitty end of the stick. Uh, you know, sometimes you got to grab the shitty end of the stick. He's talking about like a toilet plunger. I don't know what his reference was, but I, that, that phrase always stuck in my head. Like sometimes you got to go through the, the, the crap. Sorry to be so brutal here, but you know, you got to go through that, what I called it before that, that, caveman or cavewoman approach, archaic approach, just to get the lips in shape to do what we want to do. And then you polish the stone, you polish, 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 until that loud playing sounds incredible. And it sounds effortless. So your, to your point, what I tell my students is understand, number one, what, how you want to sound at the end of that. What's your goal? How do you want to sound on that? If you can't describe it for me, can you is there a recording of a player that you like that does it? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that player. Let me hear it. You know, like I talked about that high C of Phil Smith. I mean, I was there at the performance. So, I mean, when I play it next week, that, that sound is still ringing in my head from how many years ago that was. And that's the sound that I used when I was a student to model <clears throat> my own playing. The process to get there was not fun. Sometimes I'd fall off the high C to get that sound. Or, you know, let's say between one and 10, 10 being the loudest volume when, you know, when I was a student, I could only get to about a six or a five. But then that six turn, that five turns into a six, the six turns into a seven, seven turns into an eight. Eventually, you will eventually get there. So if you're patient and you're clever, clever meaning that you know the process will work for you eventually you have to be patient to get there you will get it you will get it there's technically you know i may i may stir some some controversy here by saying this but in my humble opinion tech there sh you should be able to do pretty much what one person can do another person can do i mean if it's been proven that you could with enough practice, you should be able to do most things, you know? A guy like Winton, he does absolutely insane things with his technique, but I mean, it's not just because he's freakishly talented, which he is, but he works his butt off at it, and he works so hard at it. Maybe the way he processes, the way he works, is much quicker than other people. He's a very, 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 very intelligent and creative person the way he works on things. So you need to ask yourself, are you working on that intelligently? But I do believe that you can work. I'm, I'm a case in point. I mean, when I was younger, I hadn't, my weaknesses going into Eastman were loud, high playing, soft, articulate playing, piccolo playing, most of the stuff in the upper register and endurance. And now I've been playing first trumpet where it highlights all those things. And those things for me are not, I don't, I don't worry about that. 
so much anymore. Um, but I worked really, really, really hard to get those attributes in my playing. So I think to a student, you just have to tell them, listen, you can do it. You can definitely do this. Now we need to make a plan. How are we going to do this? Here's what I think you should be doing. Let's try this. See you next week. If it's a little bit better, thumbs up. If it's the same, we need to adjust the plan a bit. If it's worse, we need to consider maybe there's over-practicing been going on. So we need to taper back a little bit, find our sweet spot. Ah, there's the sweet. That's the number of hours in a day you should practice. Those are the sessions you should do. Here are the specific exercises I think you should do for this amount of time. Seven minutes on loud, long tones that, 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 that um, you know, taper to pianissimo. In my case, it was 10 this morning. It was 10 minutes. Seriously, I sometimes I set the timer. I'm like, 10 minutes, I'll do this. You know, and then I'm not, seven minutes, I'll do this flexibility. And then eight minutes, I'll do this interval practice. You know, whatever it is. I mean, because I have to be time efficient, especially when you have a daughter. Is, I don't know if you have kids, but, you know, when I have my daughter, like, upstairs saying, Papa, Papa, and it's time to go to daycare, and I got to wrap it up. I got to wrap up my warm-up, get her to daycare, come back, and then start part two of my session which i explained to you earlier well that, i mean that that's such a uh, it is a thoughtful uh and somewhat scientific approach to practice uh it's the, it's the practicality of it but then also then there's the artistic side which is much like playing uh the the flexibility to be able to adjust what how you approach those things uh and it seems like there's always, uh, at the end of the day, there's always the, yeah, but this is this is so I can make music. It's not it's not the the practicing the technique to make the technique better. It's make, practicing the technique to make the technique better so the music can come out. That's correct. That's correct. And for students, what's really important for me to try to communicate to them is to understand, you know, hey, what's your interpretation? Or how do you want to sound? Let's dream. Let's dream big. What's your ideal of how you want to sound on this? And let's take the baby steps to get there. You know, I, I believe in deconstructing things. You know, we, we see something like the Tomasi Concerto visually and we get really intimidated. But if you simplify, 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 the baby steps will get you there. And a player, a player that normally maybe thinks that they can't play that piece with thoughtful practice and time, because it does take time, you can do it. You can yeah. do it. Unless, well, you know, there's so many stories of, of people that have done incredible things, a blind guy climbing Everest, you know, people with, with, uh, with um, prosthetic legs running a marathon. There's, you know, I can go on and on and on and on and on. There's so many incredible stories of the human spirit. Can't play the Tomasi? If you're a decent trumpet player, but you're hung up by technical issues. That's exactly the problem. You're hung up on technical issues. We need to make a plan to understand how to work through those technical issues so that you can sound the way you're dreaming. Well, how do you want to sound on this? I remember growing up here in Chicago Symphony Live, and I would go into the practice room and imitate, imitate those sounds that just try to make that sound. And maybe you can make it on one note or maybe three notes, maybe 10 notes. Eventually it'll be 20 and then 50 and 100 and da 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 It goes. But you have to imitate those sounds. You have to know how you want to sound. Yeah. 
Well, I'm a firm believer, uh, like you were saying earlier, that that if if it has been done, that means it can be done. You know, if if, if one person if one person has done it, okay, maybe that's a fluke. Okay, right, you know, I'll give you that. But yeah. if more than one person has been able to accomplish something, then that means that it can be accomplished. Now, the question is for you, you know, or for for the individual is, uh, you know, do you have a plan? And you know, you have to have a plan. And granted, some people, I hate to use the word natural, but there's there's a great book, uh, Talent is Overrated, uh, you know, and it's talking about like the studies of uh, of uh, 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 Professor Erickson, uh, the studies of, of success and, and uh, mastery, you know, these kind of concepts um, that, uh, you know, there are people that, that are predispositioned for certain things. They may have uh, a specific physical structure that that lean lends it towards being able to do something with less effort than someone else uh you know that has to overcome something or has to develop those particular skills or those experiences so i yeah i certainly believe that that there are people that are that are set up but anybody can do it but you just have to be able to do you have to have the game plan you have to have the patience you have to have the guidance and in this understanding that there's there there is inevitably a trade-off for everything. There's a price that you have to pay for everything. And I think that the reason most that a lot of people don't have success uh, is that either a they don't have the game plan or the the guidance that they need to get there, but they're not willing to do that that to pay the price, which may that may be uh, you know sacrificing uh, one aspect of their life in order to be able to accomplish that that specific goal you have to be able to, to be able to put the time in uh so you know when you're because it, it seems to me that you are uh besides being a gifted player that you are a very passionate educator so as an educator uh you know what are the tools that you you pull out to inspire uh, students and to understand, you know, help them to understand that, yes, there is going to be, you know, this, uh, there's a, there's a path that you're going to need to follow. There's a process you're going to need to follow. Uh, how do you help to encourage them through those inevitable, uh, shitty end of the stick moments? Yeah. I mean, look, I'm a passionate educator because my teachers really, all of them, I've been very, very lucky. My teachers were, they were more than teachers to me. They were mentors. They were like father figures to me. Uh, and they were amazing. And now they're, they're, they're friends, you know, and it's, you know, my teachers have been, have, have meant the world to me. And that I should say that was Jerry Loya when I first started, Ray Sasaki, Herseth, Charlie Geyer, Phil Smith, Barbara Butler. These, these individuals, they gave me so much, not only information of how to play the trumpet, but ways to work, ways to honor the work, honor your work, be disciplined, be, be, it never, you know, that's, for me, it was never an issue of hard work. I am, you know, I don't think I'm that talented on the trumpet. I don't think I'm that gifted on the trumpet. I'll just be a hundred percent real with you. Like I'm not, I'm just not, um, I should have continued with basketball, but you know, that probably wouldn't have worked very well. Um, <clears throat> but I'm not gifted on a trumpet. Um, I'm 
a really, really, really stubborn, hard worker. I love the work and I love a challenge. And where I'm probably gifted is I'm a great, I'm a great problem solver. I love chess. I love to think moves ahead. And I love a challenge. I love, um, you know, if something can't be done or if somebody were to tell me you can't do that, oh my God, that gets me so excited, you know? Uh, really? Who are, who are you to say that I can't do that? You know, that, that gets me like, that's my competitive, that's my sports competitive side. And then I'll work even harder because I love proving people wrong. I love that. But more, it's more to prove to myself that I can actually do it. So with a student, I need to know from the get-go, if they're going to enter, you know, like with me at McGill, or if they're going to come to Santa Barbara, where I teach in East Canada in the West, or if I'm working with students on a, you know, some, a lot, I have a lot of like Zoom students that come see me every once in a while, they'll do two, three, four lessons in a row. I need to know their level of motivation. I need to know their level of work. Discipline is the art of work. Discipline is understanding that you can't just work mindlessly like I did when I was a kid. What did you say? Like young, dumb, and stupid, what, young and dumb. I mean, I can't just do that. That gets me in trouble. That's when my chops are so inflamed that I can't even play a note anymore. That's just dumb. That's not, that's not, that's not hard work. That's dumb work. So you, the, the, the discipline is the art of work, which is knowing that, okay, 10 minutes is enough to do those long, long tones on a high C or around that range. That's just, a, that's just like barely too much. And I have to move on to something else. And then tomorrow's another day and I'll do a little bit more and I'll go a little higher tomorrow. That's discipline. And then, okay, 45 minutes is probably about my max in terms of where I work at my best in one session, 45 minutes. That's a sweet spot for me. I'll put that to an hour sometimes, but around 45, 50 minutes is fine. That's discipline. Then understanding that I can't bite off the whole Michael Fine concerto right now. I've got to slowly go through in sections, probably for the next month. That's discipline. So, you know, where I, where I like to live is discipline. I love discipline and I love hard work. That's my talent. And I think students, if I understand their level of motivation, and if we can make a plan so that they're disciplined, anything is possible. But if they're not willing to work extremely hard and extremely smart, we're going to have an uphill climb. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And the other thing is that I never give up. I never, ever give up. When I want something, I'm going to go at it till I get it. I don't care if it takes my whole life. I may still never get it, but I'll, I'm never, ever going to give up on it. And that's something where students, they give up too easily. They see day after day or month after month or even year after year, something's not working, they give up. That's just where it gets super interesting. Now, I understand people have to make a living. I understand that. 
So have to find a way to do both, have to find a way to make a living and still, you know, it's extremely tough. You know, it's extremely, extremely tough, but I have students that have done this, taken part-time jobs, done whatever they can do, work through their issues. And then boom, all of a sudden they win an audition. And you just never know how things are going to work out. You never, ever, ever know. It's not the algorithm that we predict for ourselves when we're kids. You just have to have that discipline. You have to never give up and you have to make a plan on how you're going to get there. Work, yeah. work from the successful side, work from your dream. What is that dream? And work backwards from there. And it could be a very, 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 very long road. And that road may take you in many, many different directions. But it's the person that never gives up that will eventually find their way. And even if they don't, they might get super close or it might take them to someplace that they never expected that's much better than the dream. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's, being, uh, it's being engaged in the process as opposed to the result. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's like when we, when we say we are successful when we have this singular result, uh, that's where we we start to to lose lose sight of the process, and yep. you know, for me, it it is less important that I mean, certainly, I'm I'm a firm believer in goal setting and things like that, and having a plan, and you know, the, all that good stuff. But it's like if I never achieve the ultimate objective, you know, the having this one uh, accomplishment, but I'm constantly going through the process. I'm 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 in love with the grind and and i i love that you know that to me that is a success the success is if i'm working and if i'm moving then okay that i'm successful you know if if i never achieve that one accolade or that one accomplishment it doesn't really matter because every day i'm just working and i'm i'm making i'm making progress so yeah i definitely feel you on that that's that's uh, absolutely kind of kind of where i live as well and i mean that the idea of discipline i think sometimes we we lose sight that uh that discipline discipline isn't a bad thing you know it's it's not a negative thing uh it's it's being able to understand the boundaries and you can't you can't make the progress uh like the concept of flow uh that that you know, we, we reach flow when we're at that spot where we're just kind of at the boundaries of what we're capable of, of doing at any given point in time. Uh, we're fully engaged in that process. But having discipline is what allows us to, to get to that spot where we're just at the edge and not too far out. Because if we go too far beyond our abilities, and that's when we have major frustration and breakdowns, physical breakdown, mental breakdown, emotional breakdowns, whatever, because we, we've pushed ourselves too far outside yeah. of, of that, that zone. So, yeah, I mean, I, I really love the, the concepts that you're talking about, and I can't wait to start to apply some of them to my own practice. So I'm going to steal some of those ideas. And I've been, I've been doing some of those recently myself of, you know, having like little problem licks for, for things and, and like trying to figure out how can I take this and make this part of my, my maintenance routine that I, that I do every day. Uh, so that even if I don't get two hours to work on this, you know, this chart, you know, on, on a given day, I know I'm addressing some of the issues that are uh, that are uh, pertinent to me being able to actually perform that. So I definitely enjoy that that concept. That's great. Well, what's fun, too, about that, I'll just I'll, I'll say one more thing about that. What's fun, too, about that is that, again, um, 
like a muscle in the body, you know, if you go weightlifting and you always are, are doing the same exercises, you actually, your muscles doesn't grow anymore because you, it's the same, you're doing the same weight, the, the amount of weight, the same exercise. You're not burning the muscle anymore. The muscle has gained strength and you're not challenging it anymore. So, you know, the exercises that we do, that's why I'm very hesitant to what well, I've had so many students ask me, Paul, can you give me your warm up? Write down your, can I write, you know, you have it on a sheet or what? Well, I can give you what I did like last month. It's all based on the same con uh, conceptual fundamentals that I just explained to you earlier, but this month it's these exercises. And they're custom tailored made to what I need in my work right now. I'm not going to give a student those licks from the Michael Fine concerto. They would look at me like I'm crazy and all keys. <laughs> you know, so, but I mean, maybe I would, certain students I would. But uh, my point is like, it's fun for me when I have a new concerto like that. And I'm looking at these passages like, oh my God, this is nuts. And, but then I make that part of my routine. Eventually those licks become very playable. Very, very, very playable. I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. But, you know, hopefully, hopefully in Guanajuato, Mexico, with the Guanajuato Symphony Orchestra on November 25th, I will be there. I better, it better be there. I'm in big trouble. <laughs> yeah, well, but, you know, one of the things that, that, that you know, is interesting to me, and, uh, you know, you're talk, whether you're talking about, like, you know, for you, or you're looking at MJ, or, you know, anybody, uh it's, you know, people that are professionals that, that are, you know, at, at a very high level of skill. Um, the average person, they see or hear the performance, but they don't get to see or hear the practice. And, uh, you know, it, you're doing, you're doing the, the, the ugly practice. You're, you're, you know, hacking away at stuff. And, you know, when you're talking about, okay, well, I'm going to have to do this and I'm going to have to do this at, at half speed and I can't play the whole thing. It's so rare to hear someone in your position talk like that openly. Because I, probably should, I probably should not do that. <laughs> but, 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 that, but, but that, that's how you get to that spot. I mean, you know, and, and if, if you are passionate, you know, uh, the collective you or the collective we, you know, if we're passionate about seeing our art form improve, then it's critical that people understand that, yes, there, there is that ugly practice that goes on. And it's okay for you to take things to half speed or quarter speed or whatever you got to do or, or to just practice this one passage for the next six months and but just doing it with a methodical uh, approach and with this this uh game plan of every day i'm just laying another brick in in building this structure that's going to be this performance and yes. you know uh i i really appreciate that because um you know th that's i could have been a much better player if i had that understanding when I was younger. And I mean, and I still, I still hate for people to hear me practice because I sound like crap when I practice. Uh, but, you know, it, it's like being willing to uh, take the ego out of it. The practice is, is to get better and to get better means that you got to do stuff that you can't do right yeah. now. Yeah, that's it. Well, the ego has a big part to play in it, doesn't it? Because 
I think the ego <clears throat> is, is, you know, people are afraid. It's changing now, though, in the younger generation. I have to say I'm very optimistic um, because I, I, I'm hearing, well, Santa Barbara just was teaching a music academy and the four students that I had, um, if they're listening here, you know, I'm not trying to pump up your, your, your own egos too much here, but they were such great players, but they were also really nice people and just really a pleasure to work with. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I think back in the day, it was thought that, well, in order to be good, I have to just be this, you know, egomaniac and whatever, and kind of people were trashing other people and all that. And I think that's going away now. I, I, I'm so happy. I'm so happy about that. And I think maybe um, the internet has something to do with that because we can hear everybody now. We know how many great players there are out in the world. There's so many great players, so many great players. You know, it's it's just inspiring. You should use that as a tool to not not to you know just take a piece of humble pie, but just to look at like, wow, this this guy's doing that, or she's doing that, or he's doing that, and I could I could I need to work on that, and you know. The whole point is when you're humble to the process, you get better. Now, where the ego and the confidence should take center stage, no pun intended, is on center stage. When it's time to go out there, you should tell yourself, I know exactly how I want to play this. I know exactly how this should go. This is going to be the definitive interpretation of this at this point, at this time. I'm not trying to say that I'm better. I'm just saying that I know exactly how I want this to go. There's no question in my mind how this is gonna go, and here it is, boom. Now, if I fail miserably, I've done, I, I did my absolute best. I did all the process. I was convinced before I went on stage that I had that. Still, things may go amiss, may go awry. I'll give my example of my ITG recital in, in San Antonio. I, actually, I'm very, very happy with it. However, it was so bloody hot in San Antonio. I think it was like 110 Fahrenheit. And coming from Canada, I just wasn't ready for that heat. It was just, it was overwhelming to me. Like I would walk from the hotel to the church where I did my recital and I would overheat. It would take me like five minutes just to wipe myself down. So in the recital, even though the church was air conditioned, but not, it wasn't really, really air like greatly air conditioned. It was air conditioned, sort of. I was sweating during the recital because I was nervous. I was just sweating, sweating. And I had to take a towel and just wipe myself off after every lick. And so I missed a couple notes in that recital that I don't think I would have normally missed as a result of just that. But I can totally live with that because I had no control. There was no way for me to really know that it was going to be that uncomfortable for me. You know, And so... But I mean, overall, I'm very pleased with the with the recital. I think you could still listen to it on um, the ITG website, you know, if people want to hear what I see, what I went through, um, you know. But I mean, those are things that you just, you know, you do your best in that moment. But there wasn't a doubt in my mind before I went on stage that I knew exactly how I wanted to sound. So in that moment, at that time, you have to be convinced that you've done the work, you've you've visualized everything, you know how musically you want to go. Technically, you've done all the work. Endurance-wise, chop-wise, you have all the strength, all the flexibility. And then it's time, as you said, Jose, this is brilliant what you said, it's time to let go. You have to let go and you have to trust the work process. You have to trust that the work was done the right way. And that's all on you. That's not on your teacher. That's on you. 
And so that's the confidence. And maybe that's a bit of ego that you must have before you, right before you step on that stage. And that comes from the work process, which is a humble process. The work process is the humble process. Yeah. I, I love it. I love it, man. God, we, we could go on on this, these topics for like <laughs> ages, but uh, I do have three segments we need to get through before we can end our time today. So let's, let's kind of hop on to the, the and, and actually this first one maybe is a good one to start out with. And uh, this is a segment called Sound Off and Sound Off is brought to us by uh, my good friend, Michael Barkley of Barkley Microphones. It's about approach to sound. Now, when you're talking about your, uh, as a principal player, and as a soloist, uh, you know, you have to be able to create this sound that that not only matches the genre of music and the composition, but also expresses the feeling that you want to get out. So when you're working uh, either with yourself or you're working with your students on developing the correct sound for a particular piece, uh, what are some of the processes that that you go through to uh, remove as many obstacles as possible to develop that kind of perfect trumpet sound. Clarity of sound is really important to me. So even though I may, you know, again, go through the, as you, as you describe it, the ugly process, you know, just like, let's talk about those extreme louds in the Mahler. Um, the clarity, even when I'm playing really, really loud, I want to have clarity and purity in my tone. I don't want a lot of garbage in the sound or something that's, I don't want the sound to be spready, you know, and diffused. I want the sound to be concentrated and resonant at all times. And that goes for whether I'm playing Mahler or whether I'm playing, you know, Tomasi Concerto. I, I want then in the Tomasi that those articulations in the outer movements are, are really pristine and, and, and that, they're, that they're full of sound that there's three parts of the note, the beginning, the middle, and the end. It's not just the beginning, which is percussive. And it's not just the middle, which is what I would call a wah-wah approach. It's the three parts, the beginning, the middle, and the end. And the end of the note is the beginning of the next note. So sound for me has to be, has to have clarity. It has to have three parts to the note, and it cannot be diffused. It has to be centered and, and concentrated. Okay, cool. All right, let's move on to uh, our next segment, which is uh, called Geared Up. And Geared Up is brought to us by Venture Mouthpieces, Venture where technology, design, and craftsmanship intersect. Use the code TrumpetGurus21, get 10% off your order. Um, so this is about gear. As I, I promised you, we would talk about uh, what size mouthpiece you play. Uh, <laughs> but uh, mostly the, the way I, I, I like to approach this is uh, like when you're thinking about gear and especially, you know, someone who's working with, with uh, budding professional students, uh, at some point you're going to need to think, rethink your gear. Uh, so when you're guiding someone through that process, uh, what is your mental approach or what is your strategy for picking the right kind of equipment uh, to get the sound and get get the the expression that you're looking to get out of uh, your instruments. Well, the way I teach always is I'm balancing the strengths and weaknesses of the individual that comes to me. I don't have a blanket approach that I have one approach for everybody. I don't really feel that that works, and that wasn't the way my teachers taught me. So if somebody's coming in, they may have um, you know a great low register, but their high register is just not happening, and there's going to be issues there with in terms of the balance that they're playing is all uneven. 
or, or, or vice versa. Their highs are, are, are really good, but they have no low register. You know, we need, to, we need to work on this. So if it comes to, down to an equipment choice, which I always feel that you need to work, whatever you're playing, you need to work first on the technical issue to the best of your ability. Then once I feel like there's, we've got some gains in that, now let's consider a, 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 an equipment change as a possibility here. So let's just say that it was the player that was a little more open and had a great lower register, but maybe had a lot of difficulties in, in the upper register. You know, we might take a look and say, well, that mouthpiece you're playing is just too big or the throat or the backboard is too big for you. It's not creating enough resistance to help you get up in that register where you can float and it's singing and easy. And then on the contrary, maybe the player that's really got great highs but doesn't have much sound and low register, well, maybe that's too small of an equipment or a rim is too thin or <clears throat> the, 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 the throat could be opened up. Let's talk about that. Let's see how that might complement the work we're doing to get you down there to make it easier for you. And these are baby steps. We can't, I don't think you can just find that equipment right away. I think it's going to be a process. And it's a hard process. Changing mouthpieces is a difficult process. I, I can't lie. When I've done it, it's usually like the first couple of days, it feels great to me. Then, uh, like after the first week, it feels terrible. Then after two weeks, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, there it is. Okay, fine. I can, I can work with that. You know, so it is a gestation period that you have to go through. And I think that's the guidance that a teacher can really help you with. Okay, cool. I like it. All right, final segment. This is, uh, in many ways, my favorite one because uh, it's crazy. Uh, this is uh, our Robinson's Remedy Rapid Fire Round. Uh, Buses by Robinson's Remedy Rapid Relief for Your Sore and Tired Chops. This is a series of questions that just kind of bounce all over the place. Uh, there's no rhyme or reason. Uh, so uh, I just want to get your quickest response to the series of questions. Are you ready, Paul? I'm nervous. Okay, let's go. All right, let's do it. All right, first question. Who's the biggest influence on your life that's not a trumpet player? Michael Jordan. Mm. What's your favorite book? The Talent Code. Uh, what's the worst movie you've ever seen? Oh, my God. Oh, oh that's a tough one. Uh, oh, my God. I was going to say Dumb and Dumber, but I actually love that movie. Uh, oh, man. Any, any, any uh, horror movie. I don't like horror movies. Okay. Uh, if you weren't a trumpet player, what would you want to be? Either a tennis player or a basketball player. All right. What's your favorite drink? Really good red wine. Okay. Um, speaking of wine, uh, you're going to have a dinner party. And you could invite any three living people. Let's let's exclude you know people that you would normally spend time with, like your you know your wife and people like that. But you have any three people in the world come to this dinner party, spend an evening with you. Who would you want to be at there? Oh man, that's a tough one. That's a great question. That's a great question. Uh, Winton Marsalis, Rafael Nadal, and Barack Obama. Okay, that sounds like a great evening. Uh, you've got three additional chairs at your dinner table, and you can invite any three people from history. Gustav Mahler, Leonard Bernstein, and Timothy Duchess. Okay. Lacquer, plated, or raw? Plated. Mm, okay. Uh, what's your favorite quote? 
Hmm. Well, there's a quote, there, there's a poem by Mother Teresa called The Final Analysis. And I'll let whoever, whomever's listening here, you can, you can um, Google the entire poem for yourself. But the last line is basically, for you see in the end, it was never between you and them anyway. It's between you and you, or you and God, or you and whatever. But basically, it's between you and you. Okay, I like that one. Uh, what is your greatest fear? Jumping out of a plane. All right. You could be granted one superpower. What would it be? Oof. Wow. Wow. That's a really good one. Um, I'd like to be able to fly. What aspect of trumpet playing do you feel is the most overrated? Um, acrobatic without sound or phrasing. All right. Uh, and what aspect do you think is the most underrated? The ability to make an incredibly beautiful phrase. All right. Uh, you are able to go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about music. What would it be? Don't overpractice. And while you're back there, you're going to give your younger self one piece of advice about life. Don't ever give up. All right. And final question for you, Paul. What do you want your legacy to be? That I serve music. Mm -hmm. Ah, well, you aced your test, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a score? Is there a score to it? Uh, no, I, yeah, I'm gonna, I have to get a scoreboard for that one. I think so. <laughs> uh, no, that was that was that, that's actually great. Um, Man, this has been really fantastic. Uh, I, I really have enjoyed talking with you and getting to know you. Uh, and I certainly look forward to uh, getting to know you a little bit better as, as uh, time goes on. And uh, yeah, I, I certainly enjoyed a lot of the uh, the stuff that you had to say was was so uh, thought provoking. And uh, it, I just yeah, I really felt uh, uh, that this was. One of those one of those hangs that really epitomizes what I'm trying to accomplish with this podcast. Well, I really appreciated it, Jose. You 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 do a great job, and it's like uh, I, I found myself, you know, talking about things in in a, in a way that it's very very personal, you know, very personal. And but your questions are 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 really great and, and right to the point. And I think a lot of what you know, especially students, need to hear right now. Um, so thank you for doing this. It's great for the trumpet community to have you, have you doing these. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. And, uh, I look forward to, uh, hearing more from you and, and, uh, hearing about how your, uh, your, uh, your big concert, uh, turns out and, uh, 
What? Charlie, you know, you know, you know what I should do? I should post some of my half tempo scale Michael Fine concerto scale stuff on Instagram. And you know what? Maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll do that. I think that that would be amazing. And uh, yeah, so the, the, certainly uh, you can check out links uh, in the show notes. Uh, so if you want to follow uh, Paul and what he's got going on, please uh, do that. And, uh, you know, follow him on social media. There's some great stuff on there. And uh, thanks for spending time with us uh, in this episode of The Hang. Remember to like, subscribe, share. Uh, if there's a, a golden nugget in here, make sure you pass it on to your, your friends, your colleagues. And uh, if you have a suggestion for a future episode, hit me up. So uh, as always, folks, peace and slide grease. We out. Thanks for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We want to see the hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of valve oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at the Candy Factory, a co-working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post-production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signal. And our closing theme music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. Graphic design by Ann Kirby of The Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Guru's Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group. Uh-huh.